0: Good evening, thank you. We're going to celebrate Franz Liszt tonight. Uh, On October 22nd, he'll be 200 years old, and here we are. So Franz Liszt was born in Hungary. It wasn't Hungary at the time, it was part of the Habsburg Empire. So uh, it was really a German-speaking area and had a lot of people who spoke Hungarian, but Liszt, in fact, did not grow up speaking Hungarian. His father, Adam Liszt, worked for Count Esterhazy, descendant of the Esterhazy that Haydn had worked for. And uh, Nicholas Esterhazy spoke German in his court, so Adam Liszt, Liszt's father, only needed to speak Ger- uh, Hungarian when he was doing business with certain tradespeople. And Adam Liszt's own father had been German and Liszt's mother was German. But it was much cooler to be Hungarian than to be German (laughs) because this was, after all, the Romantic period and everything that was a little bit exotic seemed more interesting than the familiar. So Liszt capitalized on his Hungarian roots throughout his life, both in uh, the music that he wrote and in portraying himself as a, a sort of more exotic, national. But the truth is that even the Hungarian music that Liszt heard around the court was not authentic ethnic Hungarian music. He heard a hybrid of gypsy music and more sophisticated music. But Liszt always identified himself as a gypsy, a Romani, And he talked about that a lot because what did the Romani musicians, the gypsy musicians do? They improvised. So this theme of improvisation becomes very significant when we listen to Liszt's music, not just because he could improvise so brilliantly, but because this actually influenced the way he composed. And as you're going to find out tonight, Liszt's composing, although there might have been greater composers, perhaps had a greater influence on the trajectory of 19th century composition uh, than some of his even greater contemporaries. So, uh, at the age of six, Liszt began to watch his dad, who was a cellist, an amateur cellist, in the Esterhazy Court Orchestra. And uh, his father also played the piano and the violin a bit, and so Liszt had some music around him, but suddenly at the age of six, Liszt began to sit down and play. Now we all know what it's like when kids start to play, right? But, but Liszt was clearly out of the ordinary. Now you've heard stories about young Mozart and young Rossini uh, quickly composing. Liszt wasn't composing, but he suddenly began to devour all the music that was around him. He had a prodigious memory, but was also developing his motor coordination at an extraordinary rate. And so his father, being a good father, got all the music by Bach and Handel and Mozart that he could for Liszt. Well, within a couple of years, said Adam Liszt, I mean, let's build in a little paternal exaggeration, he said that he had bought 8,000 pages of music for this child who had learned not only all the music available that Bach, Handel, and Mozart had ever written, but hundreds of other things besides. So this monster child is just eating up music <laughs> in a small town in Hungary where uh, there, there isn't really anything more to do. And the lists are not a wealthy family. So List gives a concert at age eight, playing all kinds of things by people we don't even know about anymore, pieces by Hummel, and, and uh, he has all of the wealthy burghers of the town come, and they raise money, as much money as the Lists want, to send List to Vienna with his family, of course. So mom and dad and List move to Vienna. And when List is nine years old, he's suddenly in this cosmopolitan center where he's hearing great music all around him. And he begins to take piano lessons with Carl Czerny. So suddenly List has a real teacher and he gives his first Viennese public recital with Schubert and Beethoven in the audience. Thank you very much. Both of whom thought he was just terrific. Now, of course, Beethoven couldn't hear him, but he saw him, and he knew what was happening. So Beethoven, apparently, at the end of the concert, came up in front of the whole Viennese public and kissed Liszt on the forehead, which Liszt saw as a sort of musical christening. So, so this child... Uh, is absorbing music at, a, at an unbelievable rate. And he begins to go on tours when he's 10. You know. So he goes to nearby cities and he performs these programs. Now the concert program as we know it today did not exist. So when Liszt would play on a program, it doesn't mean that he was the only performer. It means that Somebody would get up and sing a song and by Spohr, and somebody else would play a concerto by Kulau, and then Liszt would play his piece by Hummel, and then a singer would come out and sing an aria by Rossini. So this was the way concerts were done. It was a big potpourri. There was no attempt at any thematic unity, or anything like that. But Liszt always made a tremendous impression, and he loved this Viennese life. his father unfortunately got fired from his job because he was, um, I forget the exact words, but, but he was uh, temperamental and unpredictable. <laughs> and of course Liszt had some of these characteristics too. And the Liszt's moved to Paris when Liszt was about 11 or 12. So in 1823, they go to Paris. So really Liszt grew up with two main languages, German and French. Uh, And Hungarian was just a, a costume that he could put on when he wanted to. Well, Paris was a great place, too, because the musical life there was really thriving. And Liszt began to give concerts again and soon established, as a teenager, a tremendous reputation for himself. And he began to give piano lessons. And he did begin to think about composing. It was not his chief passion at this point, but he tried to write an opera. When he was 14, he wrote an opera called Don Sancho, and it was quickly forgotten. But nevertheless, it's a big undertaking for a 14-year-old to write an opera. So Liszt, already as a teenager, was a big figure in musical life in Paris. He took a concert tour to England, where he was a huge hit. He took a trip throughout France, And in Boulogne, when he was 16 16 years old, traveling with his father, his father got typhoid fever and died suddenly. So Liszt was tremendously depressed, bereft, and decided to go back to Paris, uh, moved in with his mother, of course, and um, because of this, he stopped playing for several years. Uh, Another contributing factor was that one of his students was a young woman who was the daughter of Charles X's daughter, uh, Minister of Commerce. And um, this, this affair, uh, Liszt really saw as a sort of uh, life preserver, but the father, the Minister of Commerce, broke it off and wouldn't let Liszt see his daughter anymore. So Liszt plunged into this depression and um, immersed himself deeply in religion. So for three years, Liszt is... Um, a spiritual seeker, I don't know if he played at all, but but it seems like, although he gave a few lessons, this ended. So, fortunately for us, in 1830, Liszt goes to a concert in Paris. Now, he's 19 years old, and he hears the music of Hector Berlioz. Berlioz is about eight years older than Liszt, and Liszt hears the Symphonie Fantastique, Five movements of obsessive romanticism, you know, convulsive uh, emotion that uh, is written by a man who also has suffered in the same way that Liszt has suffered. And Liszt befriends Berlioz. Berlioz is very excited because Liszt is promising him that he's going to create a piano version of the Symphonie Fantastique. Well. Berlioz thinks he's going to have to wait months for this. Liszt already has the whole work in his head, and he creates this piece on the spot. He then publishes it, and suddenly Berlioz's work, which has not been heard, and you know it's difficult to put a big orchestra together and perform it, can be heard everywhere, because Liszt is going around performing this piece. Uh, and so Liszt suddenly becomes Berlioz's advocate. This is a role that Liszt is going to play again and again in his life. He is seemingly, for all of his massive talent, one of the most ego-free giants in musical history. Every time Liszt encounters a composer whom he thinks is great, he does everything he can to promote their music, imagine that. So he goes all around performing this paraphrase of the Symphonie Fantastique on the piano. And Berlioz benefits enormously from this because suddenly everyone is hearing Berlioz's music. The only downside is that the only person who can play this is Liszt. Okay? Because in addition to having a prodigious memory and a gigantic repertoire, this child seemed to be able to play anything. Um, he would hear it, he could play it. So. Liszt becomes Berlioz's advocate and then he hears Niccolo Paganini. (laughs) Well, Paganini could do on the violin what Liszt could do on the piano. And he had a sort of diabolical quality. People actually went to Paganini's concerts and said he clearly had sold his soul to the devil because he could do things that nobody else could do on the violin. So Liszt transcribes (laughs) Paganini's violin etudes for the piano. And of course you can do things on the piano you can't do on the violin because you can play more notes at once. And Liszt suddenly finds himself revived. He's back into music. So both Berlioz and Paganini have something in common. Uh, By the way, neither one of them is a pianist. Berlioz could sort of play the guitar, And, uh, of course, Paganini was one of the greatest violin virtuosos that's ever lived. But they both admired Liszt tremendously because he could create sonorities and do things on the piano that seemingly no one else could do. So Liszt is romantic, not only in the traditional sense, but also in the sense that suddenly the individual performer is becoming more important than the music. And I don't mean that in any negative way. But clearly, uh, when Bach wrote a piece for Leipzig, or Mozart wrote a piano sonata, or Beethoven wrote a symphony, it didn't really matter who was performing the work. Paganini wrote pieces that only Paganini could play. Mm -hmm. Liszt wrote pieces that only Liszt could play. And the trend in opera was that opera singers would have the composers write pieces tailor-made for them that only they could sing. So this is the era of the virtuoso. Mozart was a virtuoso on the piano, but he didn't have pieces that he could play that nobody else could play. So this is an emerging thing, and suddenly virtuosity becomes important. But all of these showy pieces somehow lacked a depth because there was so much flash and showiness going on. Now, 1831, Liszt, who's now haunting the Paris Conservatory, where he had been denied admission because he was a foreigner, by the conservatory's director, Cherubini, who was Italian. I don't know how that worked. (laughs) But in any case, Liszt is walking by a practice room, and he hears something like this. And he walks in and introduces himself and forms a friendship with Frederick Chopin, who really was not writing terribly flashy music at all, but had this tremendous ability, through very simple means, to write deeply poetic music. And Liszt, who recognized greatness when he saw it, immediately acknowledged this. It was not competitive, but rather a situation where Liszt wanted to learn from Chopin everything Chopin had to offer. Well, Chopin had written some pretty great etudes by this time, and he offered them to Liszt, who sight-read them all, apparently, fantastically, and, and Chopin was blown away. He said, I wish I could rob from France his way of playing my etudes. But he said, of course, when he plays my mazurkas, he is like a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> because these small poetic pieces when, when Liszt would uh, play them... Liszt would uh, improve on them. And, and Chopin realized that, that Liszt just needed to be brought along. In the, you know, Subtle playing was not part of Liszt's arsenal. So, Chopin and Liszt formed this very interesting friendship. Chopin was a year and a half older. And uh, the two of them, although they weren't as close as Liszt became to some other musicians, really did have uh, a good relationship, which was symbiotic. Uh, Chopin, of course, composed almost exclusively for the piano, and later on, uh, Liszt would expand uh, what he did as a musician. So in 1834, uh, Liszt had become the celebrated pianist of Paris. He was 22 and he essentially single-handedly invented the concert tour and the solo piano recital. So, of course, with his repertoire, he could go to the major European cities, and he did. Liszt mostly played other people's pieces and transcriptions and paraphrases of music that he heard, like the Symphonie Fantastique by Berlioz, or he took the um, nine Beethoven symphonies and made (coughs) piano versions of them. Even the nine Beethoven symphonies were not widely heard in Europe, so Liszt again performed a great service. He loved Schubert. He would write paraphrases of Schubert's songs and perform them. Now, uh, as you heard from the example of Chopin's Mazurka, Liszt didn't tend to leave things simple (laughs) because he could create such effects on the piano. And, uh, for example, there's a little Schubert song called The Trout di Forella. Now, the trout is swimming happily in a stream, and Schubert's poem tells the story of a fisherman who comes along and tries to catch the trout, but the trout sees him, so the trout gets away. But then the fisherman sticks his boot in the stream, so it gets muddy, and the trout is quickly caught. Huh. <laughs> In einem helle, das schoss in Frohe That's Schubert's song, right? So, uh, Liszt writes first a pianistic depiction of the stream, and then in, it... and then at the end, the stream is heard again you may not notice. At first, I'll play this in very slow motion. This was the stream. And at the end, this is the stream. Can anybody guess why it's different? The note that is left out, F sharp, in German, is Fisch. And at the end of the song, there is no more (laughs) Fisch. So, list... I don't know if people laughed in the audience when they heard it, if they all got that joke or not, but he he creates these things, and there are all kinds of extra-musical messages going on. So Liszt primarily, and he wrote thousands of piano compositions, primarily wrote transcriptions and paraphrases, but these are not merely replications, as you see, of the original work. There's a lot of Liszt's personality that goes into these, and as he travels around and gives these concerts, the kind you know nobody's seen before, uh, people are going crazy for him. He was a rock star. He was, you know, just the way the Castrati were earlier on. Liszt became the superstar of European music. So in Paris, there was a rule. Chopin, who gave two dozen recitals in his whole life uh, and still was regarded as great, um, was allowed to charge 20 francs a lesson. Liszt was allowed to charge 20 francs a lesson, and all other Parisian piano teachers had to observe a limit of 12 francs a lesson if they were really good, and otherwise they could charge maybe 5 five francs a lesson. So there was a system in place. Liszt and Chopin were regarded as the, the ruling kings. But the interesting thing is that music in the late 18th century was still the property of the aristocracy. Suddenly, grand pianos are being produced by companies in England especially, but also in France and Germany, and every middle class home has a piano. So suddenly, there are hundreds of thousands of families where piano is part of life, and therefore piano concerts can be given To audiences. And so Liszt essentially creates a pastime for a middle class that has just emerged that centers around the piano. And every time he would give a concert, the piano manufacturer would be advertised as well. Come here, Sebastian Erard's new grand piano. Grand pianos suddenly had steel frames. They had more octaves. And the little instruments that Mozart and even Beethoven had to play on were being replaced with much stronger instruments that could fill much larger spaces with their sound and had a greater variety of sounds that they could produce. So this wasn't happening in a vacuum. Liszt and Chopin and and other pianists too, Schumann, were living at a time when suddenly the piano was taking over cultured Europe. This made Liszt's notoriety um, particularly strong, because he was the undisputed ruler. He went away on a concert tour, and when he came back, another excellent pianist named um, Talberg uh, had decided that he was now the best pianist in Paris. So uh, a competition was arranged, and Liszt and Talberg uh, showed off all their various skills, and the the verdict was, Talberg is the best pianist in Paris, Liszt is the best pianist in the world. <laughs> and, uh, so, even, even other great pianists who heard him, you know, uh, Clara Schumann, who was one of the great pianists of the 19th century, heard him and just said, it, it feels like I am a student again, there's no way, you know. Uh, Berlioz said this later on, Grieg said, it is, it is unbelievable, I, I put my violin sonata in front of Franz Liszt, who has never seen it before, he creates... Uh, on the spot, a transcription with the entire piano accompaniment uh, with supplemental orchestration, and in the middle, you know, the violin part is coming out in his thumbs and... uh. So so Liszt developed first, before he developed his own compositional style, a style of piano technique. Now, if you've played the piano, you know that melodies are usually in the upper half or third of the piano, where the tone dies away the most quickly. And that's natural because some of the great melody instruments, the soprano voice and the violin, are in a high register. But Liszt thought, hmm, since the piano has a tone that sustains more in the middle, why not find a way to alternate the thumbs and have a melody emerge uh, from the middle of the piano? So. Um, this is a typical list trick. So, so the tune is in here, but I'm just playing it with alternate thumbs. And of course, the left hand is free to add bass notes and the right hand to add uh, treble notes at the same time. So uh, he, he actually created whole new ways of using the piano. And of course, uh, one of the things that was important in the 19th century was virtuosity, such as uh, double thirds and double sixths in, in a single hand. So that um, if, if you have a, a scale like the... And I want to play two chromatic scales at the same time, but I want to use one hand, right? And Liszt would incorporate these effects into everything. So uh, there, there, there was a whole school of piano playing that came out of this. Um, because Liszt was so popular at his concerts, of course, a lot of women fell all over him. And um, it, it, one one reported an English concert was that there were bloomers flying through the air. <laughs> it was really like a rock concert. So uh, he had he had many many relationships, but but two really long relationships. And the first one began when he was 23 with the Comtesse Marie Dagoul, who was also a novelist writing under the pen name of Daniel Stern. Now she was married at the time they met, but. Um, she and Liszt had two children while she was married to her other husband. And he eventually got out of the picture. And so, uh, actually they had three children. They had uh, two daughters, Blondine and a Cosima, and a son named Daniel. So um, the problem was that in some of the places where Liszt concertized, People disapproved of this relationship and all the children. So, Liszt found, for example, when he went back to England, the audience was a little cooler because, you know, Liszt was leading this romantic life. But the romantic ideal was something you could not discount because the idea that the artist had become someone who was outside of normal human morality, was almost as important as the music they played or the novels that they wrote or the paintings that they painted. In Paris, Liszt's society was the painters Ingres and Delacroix and the writers Victor Hugo and Heinrich Heine and Balzac. They would all spend their time together and, of course, the other musicians. So they all celebrated the fact that they had somewhat extraordinary morals, and it was almost a badge of honor that society saw them as outcasts. Uh, Georges Saint, who was Chopin's companion, was actually one of Liszt's best friends, and although they apparently never had, and one of the few people neither one of them had an affair with, um, (laughs) Georges Saint and and Liszt would stay up late every night, both smoking cigars, uh, discussing love and life and art, and... um, this was a very uh, nurturing thing for both of them. Chopin, who was much more frail, you know, couldn't stay up all night. But uh, <laughs> one of the key differences between Liszt and Chopin was that Chopin had a sort of fragility, which is expressed in his music, and Liszt had almost too much energy for his own good, because uh, if there's a way that people criticize Liszt's music today, it's not that he didn't have uh, thousands of wonderful ideas, it's that perhaps uh, he lacked taste but I think, I think that's really because he had no limits to his energy. And so when he would uh, embark on a piece, it would always go sort of beyond uh, the realm where, where you would think such a piece could go. Anyway, Liszt and now his mistress and his three children travel around to Switzerland, and he's still giving concerts everywhere. And uh, uh, a, a new figure enters into his life. Richard Wagner... Well, Liszt hears Wagner's music, and immediately he recognizes, and this is the extraordinary thing about him, that it's greater than his own. He's met somebody who has a genius which deserves to be publicized. Wagner was truly one of the most repulsive human beings that has ever lived, and everywhere he went, he was sent away because he would get into trouble, and therefore his music Uh, was never heard. Well, Liszt resolved to change this. And Liszt was a very diplomatic person. Everywhere he went, he knew who the most important people were, he knew how to talk to them, and he knew how to uh, get performances. So so he began to champion Wagner as well, just as he had Berlioz and Paganini. So Wagner uh, was a tremendous opportunist. And Liszt, by this time, was tremendously wealthy. So uh, there are thousands, literally thousands, of letters from Wagner to Liszt asking for lots of money, and uh, Liszt gives it to him over and over. In fact, Liszt gives money to just about everybody who asks him for it. Uh, When when there is a campaign to raise money for Danube flood victims, Liszt gives a concert tour, raises a million dollars, gives the money. When they want to raise a Beethoven monument, Liszt plays a concert tour, gets the money together, and um, he sponsors the Beethoven monument. Um, when retired musicians need money, Liszt raises the money. So he does this uh, selflessly and seemingly effortlessly uh, throughout his life. However, with Wagner, it seems that uh, there is a black hole that can't be filled, because uh, Wagner, as you know, uh, was not a modest man. And uh, he had gigantic dreams of what he should be. He knew that he was a great genius, which he certainly was. And he also felt that every other person in the world existed to serve him. So um, at a certain point, even Liszt began to run dry on, on Richard Wagner. And uh, uh, when when Wagner said, "I need to, you know, build a theater," and I have a dream that I'm going to create a whole center, uh, at first Liszt said, "Even for me, this is beyond what I can do. As much as I would love to uh, fulfill the needs of your genius," so remember that. Just we'll come back to Wagner. Uh, meanwhile, Liszt embarks on a concert tour that lasts from 1839 to 1847, the most gigantic (laughs) concert tour the world has ever known. He is known from Moscow to Madrid to England to Norway. Uh, That's where he becomes friends with Grieg. And he, of course, has this incredible reputation. So during this time, he's away from Comtesse Marie a lot. And gradually their relationship ends. In 1847, he meets the second truly important woman in his life, a Polish princess named Carolyn von Sein Wittgenstein, and she decides that Liszt should settle down, stop concertizing, and realize his own genius as an original composer. And Liszt decides that it's better to retire at 35 with the reputation of being the greatest pianist the world has ever known than to go on indefinitely and perhaps be ultimately surpassed by others. So he ends the concertizing chapter of his life and turns his attention to composing, composing original pieces, not just piano pieces. One of the first things he does is he writes about... 65 or 70 songs for Carolyn von Sein Wittgenstein. Now, I know if you were here uh, in in October, you know that Schumann wrote 170 songs for Clara in a year, so maybe Liszt's accomplishment seems small. But Liszt was not really a lover of vocal music. He felt that the piano was the most colorful, expressive musical tool available to humankind, And so he saw songs as a sort of parlor diversion. And he didn't have the literary experience that say Schumann had. So he didn't always choose the greatest poems, but he did pick some poems by Ferdinand Freilichrath called um, Liebes Teume, Dreams of Love. And he set three of these as songs. Um, The third one is particularly beautiful, and the text uh, is, Oh, love, as long as you can love. Oh, love, as long as you want to love. uh, The hour is coming where we will soon be standing by the grave and weeping. Is this romantic poetry or what? Uh, So so love me now while we still have the chance. And he dedicated this to Carolyn. Now... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Somehow she took this in a good spirit, because it sounds like a poem that could be misinterpreted. But um, people died much younger in those days, and so the fact that they were both only in their mid-30s already made this poem valid. Oh, love, while you still can love, love me now. And the, poem, the, the song went something like this. <laughs> oh, leap, oh, leap, so long du leben kannst, Okay. You've probably heard that tune yes. in another context. So uh, he and Carolyn have this uh, relationship and he begins to compose. But Liszt's mind has been so absorbed with translating the music of others that one of his first ways of composing is to take Hungarian melodies and turned them into what he called Hungarian rhapsodies. Now, through his life, he wrote 19 of these, but the early ones are perhaps the most familiar. And he said Romany music, gypsy music, is the core of Hungarian music and is based on either song or dance. So dance was usually accompanied by a violin. Gypsies didn't have pianos around the campfire. And so he wrote these pieces that evoked the violin, but of course, as with his transcriptions of Paganini, took the violin far beyond the range of the actual literal violin. And uh, I'm sure the most famous of the Hungarian rhapsodies you know begins with something that is really a violin solo. <laughs> To a different kind of Hungarian song. And you can hear the kind of passion that's being expressed, right? The Hungarian soul, which is always at some emotional extreme. And this is what Liszt celebrates. Also, he's able to create the effects of the gypsy band with its zithers, its cymbaloms. And gradually, this becomes a frenzied dance. Rhapsodies are always in a single movement, and they typically incorporate about four themes of different moods. Like the sixth Hungarian Rhapsody starts with this... (laughs) the mood but then we take a a dance movement and then suddenly we're in a violin solo with a gypsy dance, and this is a very typical thing for Liszt. First, he'll state the theme in a rather innocent way, and then the gypsies will get fired up a bit, and it will build. And then finally, it's a crazed finale. So he'll start with the. Which a minute later has become. finally, by the end of the Rhapsody. If you're so these things all uh, depend upon the virtuosity of Liszt in order to uh, make, them, make them live. So uh, they're not musically deep pieces, but they're tremendously exciting pieces. Okay, so as Liszt... Uh, lives with um, Carolyn von Sein-Wittgenstein. He gets offered a post in Weimar. Now, Weimar is not a big town in Germany, but it's a very important town, culturally. Goethe was from there, Schiller was from there, so even though it had and has maybe 60,000, 70,000 people, uh, sound familiar? (laughs) So Weimar was this incredible place, and Liszt took a position there uh, as a conductor. He had not had much experience conducting, but he quickly learned and became perhaps the first modern conductor, because conducting at this point was almost a a metronomic affair where someone would stand in front of an orchestra and just beat time. And and Liszt devised ways of bringing (laughs) things out of the orchestra, and it was tremendously successful. So he gave the premiere of Tannhäuser and the premiere of Uh, Lohengrin Wagner's operas at at, uh, Weimar and uh, was able to create a real following for poor old Wagner who was exiled yet again because his behavior was always so atrocious. He also, at this time in his life, met his favorite and greatest piano student. Liszt had the good fortune to have a student named Hans von Bülow. Now, he was about 20 years younger than Liszt, and had an incredible mind, uh, became a fantastic pianist, a fantastic conductor. He was also a composer. But uh, unlike Liszt, he was not able to be diplomatic. Liszt somehow knew when he was in front of an orchestra how to encourage the best out of them. And when he was off uh, playing or something, Bulov would be standing up there, and I, I read at one Point, he said to the trombone section, you sound like gravy running down a sewer. So the orchestra didn't like von Bülow. But, but von Bülow was, was a brilliant man, and eventually von Bülow married List's daughter, Cosima. So uh, Bülow and Cosima and List were tremendously close, and List continued with Carolyn von Wittgenstein, um, Composing, and then he would be invited to go and hear things. Now, remember, again, as with symphonies, operas could not be performed as easily. You had to be in the right place at the right time. So if Liszt heard a great opera that he really loved, he wanted to bring it to everybody, so he would write an operatic paraphrase, and he wrote literally a hundred of these things from operas by Wagner and Rossini and Mozart and... uh, brought them to everyone's awareness. So when he heard Rigoletto, he thought this was just one of the greatest operas he'd ever heard, and he created a paraphrase of the Rigoletto Quartet. And I just want to play you a little of this to demonstrate how Liszt put his own personal stamp on things. Now, if you remember the Rigoletto Quartet, it goes something like this. Bella figlia dell'amore Schiavo son de con un detto, detto sol, tu puoi, le mie pene, le mie pene a consola. Very simple, right? A few chords. So Liszt uh, actually not only changes the coloration, but the melody itself. Um... So you'll see if you see if you can hear that. So the um the <laughs> tune actually Verdi's tune goes, but uh, Liszt goes. So these new chords that he's introducing everywhere uh, are almost instinctive to him to the point where he does not feel the need to resolve them. Now, I'm going to go into a little bit of compositional talk for two minutes. Bear with me, Okay. This is interesting because in all the other romantic composers, Schumann, Mendelssohn, Chopin, who are born just a year or two before Liszt, these same chords occur, but they always resolve. They are felt as tensions that need to come back to their home chord. In Liszt, he loves these chords and sees no reason to go away from them. (laughs) so we can be in a piece and for a long time not have any idea what key center we are in because of the, all the diminished sevenths you know and all of the half diminished sevenths even wagner who's two years younger than liszt uh, and who is famous for the so-called tristan chord in the overture of tristan and isolde resolves that chord for him that's still a classical ideal. I'll play the opening bars of the overture of Tristan and Isolde. But it has a happy ending. Okay, but in Liszt, because these chords in his compositional self do not need to be resolved, he is the composer, the single composer who leads the way to atonal music. Whole tone scales, all of this Liszt feels comfortable with, and perhaps the reason is that Liszt, although he could write counterpoint, had virtually no instinct that counterpoint was a necessary part of music everything that I've played you, if you think about it, is melodically driven and rhythmically driven, but it is not contrapuntally driven, by which I mean several voices at once, which not only make horizontal sense in where they lead, but also make vertical sense in how they blend with one another. Forgive me, I know that was a somewhat technical discussion, but I'm going to just try and say, uh, Liszt does not feel the same uh, four-part choir in the back of his mind that every other uh, German-based composer felt. And therefore, his psyche was more suited to moving away from uh, traditional 19th-century music than any other significant composer. So uh, this, of course, plays into all of his works. And finally, he begins to write um, original works that are not paraphrases and that are not uh, transcriptions. Um, There is, for example, in 1854 a gigantic sonata by Liszt. You've heard of sonatas by Mozart and Beethoven and even romantic composers like Brahms and Schumann. These sonatas follow something called sonata form. They're in several movements. Liszt's sonata is in one gigantic movement. If Beethoven writes a sonata, it has, in a single movement, uh, a first theme, like, I don't know. And then a second theme of a different character. But in Liszt, there are no movements, there is no exposition, development, and recapitulation. He takes a single theme and uses a technique which he essentially developed himself called thematic transformation. And that theme is made to be fast, to be slow, to be sad, to be heroic. That single combination of notes by changing rhythms and changing harmonies becomes the germ that creates the entire 25 minute, one movement sonata. This had never been done before. However, you can guess who utilized this compositional technique to create an opera which is 15 hours long, and that is Richard Wagner, because the entire ring cycle is based on several dozen themes which are transformed, this technique that Wagner learned so well from Liszt, and uh, I hate to say this, because this is Liszt's night, but Wagner used them more expertly than Liszt. Uh, and um, with Liszt, the, the technique is, is on parade. We see exactly what's happening. But nevertheless, Liszt's compositional contribution to what happened to the 19th century is perhaps greater than anyone's, because um, somehow his... Uh, Necessity of finding solutions and working them out in front of everybody, so to speak, made the compositional technique clearer for anyone else to adapt. So let's look at the B minor sonata for a second. Um, it's supposed to be in B minor, first of all. He calls it sonata in B minor. It starts nowhere near <laughs> B minor and with material that doesn't seem to be in any key at all. And finally, we take this. Both of those are just diminished sevenths, so we still don't know where the heck we are until now. theme and already transformed it twice this theme comes back in all kinds of guys is like this repeated four note theme suddenly those same four notes take the opening theme. And suddenly it's. You might not, on listening to the piece, even recognize that it's the same theme. But it's exactly the same intervals and more or less the same rhythmic relation uh, with completely different harmonies. And um, I can't emphasize enough how much this technique of thematic transformation influenced all music composed afterwards. Uh, You may know a piece by Rachmaninoff called Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, right? And it's uh, variations on. If you turn that theme upside down and you slow it down, you get It's not a gorgeous melody he thought of. He just turned the theme upside down. It's, it's thematic transformation. So this all comes from Franz Liszt. And after 1850, until uh, music of the most you know, contemporary, non-traditional type, uh, this is the key compositional technique used for 100 years. Okay? So Liszt <coughs> writes this great sonata, and uh, his fame is magnificent and uh, he's very content, but he decides that he needs to write um, something to make better on that song, you know, that that, O leap, O leap, so long. Now, (laughs) Chopin's Chopin's piano pieces were turned into songs in the early 20th century to make them more, but Liszt felt, of course, that the highest summit any musical composition could achieve would be to become a piano piece. So he did a transcription of his own song into a piano piece. And I'm going to play you the Liebestraum, um, that song, as the piano piece which Liszt created out of it. Okay? <laughs> It's time to start tying up some of the loose ends of this story. Liszt is now living at Weimar with Carolyn von Sein Wittgenstein. And a couple of tragedies occur. Two of his three children die. Blondine and Daniel, both in their early 20s. Uh, as I said, living a full life in that era was not as common as it is now, and uh, unfortunately, you know, many people had six, eight, ten children, and maybe three would survive through adulthood. So there were, there were so many diseases that uh, nobody knew how to cure, and uh, this happened also to Liszt. So the only child that remained was Kozima, who really was the apple of his eye, Uh, not only because of her, but because she was married to his favorite piano student, Hans von Bülow. Okay, so Wagner is having his operas done at Weimar and Cosima and Wagner take a train trip together. (laughs) According to Wagner, no words were exchanged. (laughs) But nothing was ever the same after that. Pretty soon, Cosima became pregnant. And von Bülow, assuming that it was his own child, didn't say anything when she said, let us name this child Isolde. (laughs) So a year later, she was pregnant and had another girl. Do you all know the opera Die Meistersinger? And who is the heroine of Die Meistersinger? Eva. So the next baby comes and Cosima says, let us name this baby Eva. Well, von Bülow had conducted these operas, but he didn't catch on nor did Liszt. And so, finally, when the third child comes, Siegfried, (laughs) Cosima fesses up the whole thing and asks Bülow for a divorce. And Bülow, who's not very smart, says, who is the father? (laughs) And and this is truly extraordinary. She tells him it's Richard Wagner, and he says, oh, well, at least it is a great man. (laughs) So off goes Cosima and Wagner with their three children, but Liszt was just devastated by this. And for the first time in decades, he won't speak to Richard Wagner. And given what you know about Liszt's generous character, it's the first time, I think, that he ever had a rift with anyone. You know, Clara Schumann was horrible about uh, Liszt. She admired his piano playing. Who wouldn't? But she said his pieces heap one atrocity upon another. And he knew this. But he kept dedicating pieces to her and, you know, he, he didn't care. He, he was completely impervious to insults cast upon him by Clara Schumann. When she published the uh, works of her husband Robert, one of his greatest, one of Robert Schumann's greatest pieces was the Fantasy in C, which he dedicated to Franz Liszt. And Franz Liszt dedicated his great sonata in B minor to Robert Schumann. But when Clara published this, she uh, withdrew the dedication so the public wouldn't know that Schumann had this admiration for Liszt. Schumann said Liszt and Paganini were the only two human beings who could perform in such a way that one left the earth. But uh, Clara didn't want anybody to know this. But, (laughs) But it didn't bother Liszt. The only thing that bothered him was his daughter's affair and children with Richard Wagner. Of course, This means that all the descendants, and there are many, of uh, Siegfried Wagner um, are descendants not only directly of Wagner, but of Liszt, too. So that's kind of (laughs) cool. These are the people, by the way, who are always uh, haggling over who is going to run the Bayreuth Festival. Because uh, (laughs) Wagner's family intended to keep Bayreuth as a family business. So Winifred Wagner and all of her descendants are, are direct descendants not only of Wagner, but also of Liszt. And uh, if you follow the intrigues, you know, it's just like the intrigues of the gods in Valhalla, even now. <laughs> Who is going to direct and what are they going to do? Uh, it's, it's actually kind of wonderful. So, um, Wagner and Liszt did, in fact, in 1872 uh, mend their differences because, ultimately, Liszt couldn't resist Wagner's genius. And the fact that Wagner kept creating these masterworks of music theater was even more important to Liszt than the fact that he had uh, destroyed the relationship between his favorite son-in-law and his favorite daughter. Now, Liszt's life um, took a turn. He wanted very badly to marry, for the first time, to marry Carolyn von Sein-Wittgenstein. Uh, She, of course, also happened to be married to somebody else when she and Liszt met. And so uh, the Catholic Church refused to allow them to be married. So Liszt, who was quite influential, um, used his connections in Rome, and the Pope was going to make an exception. And the two of them were going to be married on Liszt's 50th birthday in October of 1861. So, Liszt traveled to Rome, and the day before the wedding, the Pope was persuaded not to make this exception, even for Franz Liszt, and so the wedding never took place. At that point, Princess von stein Wittgenstein and Liszt decided to become platonic friends, and they remained close for the next 25 years. Uh, they lived together, but their relationship as lovers ceased at that point. So Liszt continued to compose, but because he was in Rome, he began to turn more to a passion of his youth, and that was the church. So he composed sacred cantatas. He composed all kinds of music with religious associations. He would write pieces about St. Francis preaching to the birds, all with fantastic pianistic effects, of course. You know, all the birds are chirping at the same time. Um, And and then he did one of St. Francis of Paola walking on the waves. Well, that's great, you know, you can just imagine. So, So he continued to write original piano music and became obsessed with a subject that is familiar to all of you, Faust a logical subject for somebody who felt in some ways that he had chosen to become a diabolical performer and at the same time now felt himself being drawn closer to God in his old age. So he saw Guno's Faust and he wrote a piano paraphrase of themes from Guno's Faust. And then he wrote uh, two orchestra pieces, both of which he called the Mephisto Waltzes. Now, Mephisto, Mephistopheles, is another name for the devil. And in the play Faust, forgive me if I'm saying something you all know, uh, Faust, an old doctor, makes a pact with the devil in order to have his youth back for a limited amount of time, and the price is his own soul. However, what Faust doesn't realize is that Faust is not one of the most pure souls on earth anyway, and the soul that the devil is really after is the young and innocent peasant woman whom he falls in love with, Margarita. Now in Gounod's opera, Faust is damned, but a gigantic chorus of angels appears at the end of the opera, and Margarita's soul is taken to heaven. In Liszt's version of the Mephisto waltz, he doesn't know what the fate of his own soul is, so he writes two endings. And in one, the Faust character and Marguerite walk off into the sunset, and in the other, you can hear the earth open up and swallow the two of them. So these orchestral pieces, being for a mere orchestra, didn't um, please list as much as they might if they had been written for the greatest of all instruments, the piano. So he rewrote his orchestral compositions and transcribed them, his favorite thing to do, for piano. Now, you have to admit that is the opposite of what usually happens. If Maurice Ravel writes some great piano music and then decides later in life, since he's a great orchestrator, he's going to orchestrate it, that's sort of the logical progression of things. But uh, for somebody to write an orchestra piece and then to bring it to its apotheosis, create the piano transcription. That could only be if the composer is Franz Liszt. So then he writes Mephisto Waltz's 3 and 4, just for piano. And as he becomes uh, more sedate, his piano skills, of course, are what they always were, but he begins to write in a very different way he begins to explore what happens when not only do we stay in the diminished seventh and the half-diminished seventh, but we wander away with the other voices so that tonality breaks down almost completely. And uh, there are pieces that he writes toward the end of his life where we really have no key center at all. Now, because the non-harmonic chords are repeated over and over, there's still a compositional logic to this music. But it is the first time that a composer ventures away from all tonality. And as we all know, this affects the course of Western music. Brahms, 10 years later, begins to explore what happens if we uh, play a row of thirds or a row of fourths but uh, Liszt was well in advance of Brahms. Brahms, by the way, didn't care much for Liszt, but Liszt, once again, with characteristic generosity, said, Brahms Paganini variations are much better than mine, but I did write mine first. (laughs) (laughs) So Liszt, in a way, uh, because of his improvisatory nature as a composer and his comfort with chords that are open-ended rather than resolved uh, does more for composing than the composers who felt that tie to the greatness of the composers of the past Brahms spent over 20 years writing his first symphony Brahms was 20 years younger than Liszt because he felt that the shadow of Beethoven was so great that he had to preserve the classical tradition of Beethoven in his symphony, even though the language is more romantic. But Brahms essentially remains classical. Uh, Liszt's contemporaries, of course, Mendelssohn, Chopin, Schumann, all remain more classical than Liszt. And even Wagner comes back to tonality in the end every time. But Liszt leaves us hanging on a chord that has no resolution at all. So, in 1865, he takes orders, and then in the 70s, he actually becomes uh, something called an abbe, not a priest. Liszt never became a a priest, but he did take minor religious orders and continued to write his Stranger and Stranger music. But actually, the the story doesn't end there. this is Santa Fe, so I have to tell you this. In, in, in 1968, uh, about, um, so 60, 80, 80 years after Liszt's death, uh, a British woman named Rosemary Brown claimed that she was getting psychic transmissions from <laughs> Franz Liszt, okay? And uh, she said that um, he had continued to write in heaven, and that... Uh, so I guess we know which ending of the Mephisto waltz he should have used. Um, and that, that uh, he felt that um, some of his compositions were interesting and should be heard by the world today. And so um, she proceeded to write down a dozen or so of these pieces transmitted to her. Now, um, other composers, I guess also in heaven, decided this was too much of a good opportunity to pass up. So... Um, <laughs> Chopin and Rachmaninoff and Debussy and, and you know three or four others began to transmit compositions to Rosemary Brown, <laughs> who was a housewife living in Balaam, right, a suburb of London. And uh, she would just... First, first, she would sit at the piano because she had some modest skills as a pianist, but as the compositions got more involved, she couldn't play them, so she'd sit down and write them down. Now, I have no idea how, how this happened. But um, something happened and uh, although none of the compositions which emerged from her pen are particularly good, uh, the BBC decided they would investigate and they sent a team of musicians to Rosemary Brown's house and they said, okay, do your thing. <laughs> so Rosemary uh, sat down and said to Liszt, um, please give me something to convince them. And he gave her a piece called Grubelai, which means pondering and the left hand was in 3-2, and the right hand was in 5-4, and it sort of wandered around, and and, um, at the end, this fellow from the BBC looked at it, and of course, he was trying to detect a hoax, but as far as he could tell, uh, this woman had just sat down and and written this piece, which sounded enough like Liszt that a Balam housewife probably hadn't just come up with it. So uh, there is a disc Um, and if you go on YouTube and you type in Rosemary Brown, you can hear these pieces by Liszt and Debussy and uh, other, you know. Often when I was a kid, I thought it was very funny because uh, if somebody had written a piece that was lost, and it was found after their death. It always said opus posthumous, published posthumously. But these are actually composed posthumously. <laughs> so there's a whole body of new works out there for you to discover. So Franz Liszt lives on, okay? Now, I wanted to end this evening's uh, talk concert by playing you this Mephisto waltz. And, and I truly think that of all Liszt's compositions, this is one of the greatest. Um... He, he essentially is using something we all know as programmatic music. There is music which has no absolute theme. Uh, if you listen to a symphony by Mozart or uh, a symphony by Brahms, nothing represents, and this is where the girl came in the door and looked at him, and it was love at first sight. You could make up those stories, but in Liszt's Mephisto-Waltz, number one, there actually is a story, and he gives you the German poem Uh, by Lenau right at the beginning, so you know what the story is. And the the poem is called Der Tanz in der Dorfschenke, the dance in the village inn. So I'm gonna tell you the story, then I'm gonna play you the piece. Faust and Mephistopheles walk into a village inn in a small town and there's an amateur band playing. Mephistopheles with his supernatural powers is able to make the orchestra whip into a frenzy. And then he grabs a violin from one of the violinists and plays in a way that only supernatural beings or Paganini or Liszt can play. (laughs) And immediately, all the people in the village inn start dancing in a way that they've never danced before. This distracts them from the fact that the beautiful girl, Margarita, is catching sight of Faust, and Faust catches sight of Margarita, and so once all of the villagers have danced in their crazed, maniacal way out the front door, Marguerite is left alone with Faust, and now Mephistopheles uses his violin in another magical way, and begins to play great seduction music. So we hear the seduction, we hear the lovemaking, but in the middle of the lovemaking, which is Pretty expl- Hold on to your bloomers, okay. Um, <laughs> the the devil is heard laughing. We hear his commentary because he knows in the end he's going to win. So when you're, this is demonic laughter. Maybe not just Mephistopheles. Maybe a whole. Host of demons. So, as this scene, as this love scene goes on, we hear the alternation between uh, their, their love scene and all the, the demons from hell starting to relish what's going to happen. So, um, at the end, we hear the nightingale singing and then the lark singing because uh, the sun is coming up and uh, Faust and Marguerite are still together. And we take ending number one, and the earth opens up and swallows the two of them. It's fantastic. So this <laughs> is Mephisto Waltz number one.